This is Transfiguration Sunday, and Transfiguration Sunday marks the transition from Epiphany to the revelations of Jesus that we've been considering the last few weeks, and it turns us towards the more repentant season of Lent. It's a turning, you might say, if you think of it in terms of narrative. It's a turning from Jesus' words and works in Galilee as a symbol to the climactic last events of his life in Jerusalem. And this pivot, this transition, is a wonderful time for baptism as we have two families and six children this morning who will be baptized. Baptism, of course, is also for us a turning point, and so it, it, it fits greatly in a Transfiguration Sunday. For when we're baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into the meaning of his death, but also into the meaning of his life. This is something Paul spent a great deal of his life thinking about. Paul said in Romans 6 that in baptism, it's creating in us a new life. And in this new life, Paul said in Romans 8 that we're then made heirs of all that God was up to in Jesus. Now, we'll have time in a few minutes to make some formal prayers and some vows together, and we'll all renew our covenant vows together. But just to say here in this moment to the parents and godparents that baptism is a reorienting act. It's an act that seeks union with Christ, wherein I'm saying my life is defined by and given borders by the story of Jesus. The things that Jesus taught and did his sacrificial death and resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Spirit, and his present-day life at the right hand of the Father. I think I've said this to you before probably, but it's worth repeating. It would do all of our lives, all of our spiritual lives, a great deal of good if we could somehow just hold in our conscious mind that Jesus is presently living the most interesting and consequential life we could ever imagine. Not just a historical figure. He is presently alive and living the most consequential life we could ever imagine. And it's that that we're all trying to give ourselves to. That's the, that's the, that's the goal and end and purpose of spiritual formation. That's what we're saying in baptism that we give ourselves to. So the story of the transfiguration has these very famous words, listen to him. And when we hear that, it's, it's, it, of course, includes what Jesus taught. But as I said, it's more that listen to him says something to us like this, that Jesus' story is the defining script for my life and that I'm seeking union with God's purposes through him. Well, what were those purposes? Well, maybe they're best summed up in Jesus' announcement of the kingdom and especially Mark 1 and Matthew 4 that the kingdom of God is near. Repent, rethink your life, believe, place your confidence in me, and then come follow me. So our readings this morning on a Transfiguration Sunday reveal the glory of God upon Moses and upon Jesus in the Transfiguration. And in baptism, and in the renewal of our baptismal vows, we're all invited to say, yes, Lord, I will listen to you. I will follow you. I will trust in and rely on your teaching and your manner of being in the world, your priorities, the things that oriented your life. 
So that the glory of God revealed in our readings this morning invite us to say from the heart, Jesus's identity, Jesus's sense of himself is becoming my sense of myself. This is what my sense of faithfulness is. It's my identity becoming ever more what Jesus thought of himself. And so in baptism this morning, parents and godparents are at least saying, I give thanks to God for my child. And I recognize that life comes from God and that life exists for a purposeful reason. So we learn something of this purposeful reason from the context of the transfiguration. We didn't read it this morning, but just a few verses up, Jesus had just said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, when you're being asked to count the cost of following Jesus, when you're thinking through whether it's just a notional value or something real in me that I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God, that I'm going to actually try to become the kind of person who would love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, and learn to love my neighbor and even my enemy? Well, what these two stories tell us, both the transfiguration and the story of Moses, is that it's good to know that there's something beyond us, something that's not us, something other, yet is with us, and it's real. And so the story of Moses and the story of the transfiguration are both meant to say to us, you can have a powerful assurance that something is always there, but not always seen, not always made manifest as it was in these occasions. Henry Nouwen has written that there's a constant hidden reality to our lives. He says it's God's active presence in the Holy Spirit. But he says, we're kept so busy that we no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in quiet silence. And what Henry is pointing at, I think, is that the notion that after the transfiguration, that James and John and Peter, they took a huge step in seeing things from God's point of view. For instance, in 2 Peter, when he's describing his life and his own sense of being called to announce the gospel, he says, we did not follow cleverly, desired, cleverly devised stories when we told you about Jesus. No, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So Peter's saying this isn't religious rhetoric. And again, I've said to you before, but for, for like evangelistic, for apologetic reasons, just hold in your mind that Peter was at least as smart as you that he was able to recount his life truly. That these aren't fairy tale sort of things. These aren't, the whole point that Peter is saying is, look, I'm not making this up. I saw this. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I heard the voice that said, this is my son whom I cherish. Listen to him and follow him. Peter says, we heard the voice that came from heaven on the sacred mountain. So then a major part of Christian spirituality is of following and of following Jesus is learning to notice the fact that behind what often seems to be a daily dullness, what often seems to be a muted or grimy curtain that exists over a painful emotional, physical, or spiritual symptoms, behind all that is always a great reality shining, 
always willing our good. So what was to be the proper response of Israel to the seeing of glory of God on Moses' face? And what's the proper response to the revelation that's in the transfiguration? I think it's this. A clear and complete commitment to Jesus that says, I am your student in kingdom living. I am your apprentice. I'm your follower. And in my heart, it's not just notional, it's real to me that you have the ultimate supreme lordship of my life. That's what all this is supposed to roll up to. They're fantastic stories. I mean, they're stunning stories. But they're to roll up into something really simple. Because the transfiguration reveals the deepest reality and significance of everything. It's like a little kid looking through a microscope or a telescope for the first time. It's as if because of the transfiguration, everything now has potential to be more than what it seems to be. It just alerts us that there are further dimensions and layers of reality than what's right in front of our face. But again, thinking of Nouwen's writings, Nouwen was is always wanting to bring us back to the notion that we, our tendency is to live in alternatives other than knowing this great, glorious, willing, our good reality that lies behind everything. Nouwen says, we do everything possible to avoid painful confrontations with our basic human brokenness, which leads us into being trapped by false gods who promise immediate satisfaction and quick relief. Henry, like, Henry writes, like the false god of busyness, traps us by the fear of what we might discover should we ever come to genuine stillness. And I want to say this matters. We all have regrets in life, right? One of mine happened when I was probably 24 years old. We were starting our first church. We were meeting in the gym of a private day school in West Virginia. And we had to roll out carpet every Sunday because they didn't want us putting chairs on the gym floor. It was after church one Sunday, and we were rolling up carpet. And this older lady, God knows how, everybody's young to me now, but at 24, everybody was old, right? So this lady comes up to me and says, um, you know, Todd, I like, I love this place. I love you. But you just often don't seem present on Sunday mornings. That was almost 40 years ago. Why? Because I think I'm serving. I'm setting up chairs. I'm rolling up carpet. After church, I'm, ro I'm rolling it out. I'm rolling it back up. I'm putting the chairs away. Like I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And this lady just had the ability to notice that I wasn't actually being present to her. And this is why busyness is not just a little sort of trendy cultural thing to talk about. It actually matters. For when we're busy and in a hurry, driven by thousands of conflicting stimuli, we become really inhospitable people. And the way our life begins to feel to others is our life is like a merry-go-round. Can you remember being, I don't know, five, six, seven years old in elementary school, and maybe the big boys were on the, what do you call that thing? the merry-go-round, and, and then maybe the big kids were pushing it too fast and you couldn't get on. Do you remember that lonely feeling? That's the way our lives can begin to seem to others, even to spouses and children and neighbors and others. 
Is it just too much going on? It's not a hip little thing to say on Facebook that, yeah, I'm really busy this weekend, as if that makes me something. It's actually got a lot of hidden tragedy in it. When our lives feel like they're just too hard to connect to, no one really feels welcome. But our readings this morning tell us there's something else we can ground ourselves in, a reality, a weighty substance that's actually present in our world. But how do we come to actually see, and this is Nowen's thing, how do we come to actually see and regularly connect with this glorious reality in a clear way so that we can live in alignment with it? Well, one core practice is slowing. And I'll see you all Wednesday night, but Wednesday night you'll you'll see that this Lent, as we pivot to Lent, that what we're going to do in Lent is pursue an unhurried life. And I'm going to invite you this Lent to move beyond chocolate and move beyond sugar or whatever your deal is, and we're going to try to have together a really kind of robust Lent and see if we can take this serious, see if we can find a way to discover some Lenten practices of slowing so that in the slowing, we actually could hear that voice that Peter heard that reoriented his whole life. This is my son, whom I love, and with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We don't slow for the sake of slowing. We slow for the sake of presence. We slow for the sake of the ability to hear and give allegiance to that word. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So then the transfiguration is a source of hope. The transfiguration tells us that our world is worth saving. The disaster and brokenness and injustice are never the last word. And when our hope wanes, we're invited to know and be baptized into the experience of Moses, of Israel, of Peter, James, and John. Learning somewhere deep within us that behind reality, which is really real, lies this incomprehensively glorious person, and that this God can be confidently confidently relied upon to both superintend my life and all of human history to the fulfillment of his purposes. So now we're going to turn ourselves to baptism. And as we do so, I want to give you a quiet moment, because it's not just these six children who are being baptized, but this morning all of us are renewing our baptismal vows And so as we turn to this time and uh, take a quiet moment here, I want you to take a moment to consider this glorious God that lies behind all reality, that makes himself seen in instances like the transfiguration and Moses coming down from the mountain. Now, having considered that God, take a moment to identify an element in your life that either seems empty or maybe you don't sense the presence of God with you or maybe there's a place in your life right now where you're tempted to despair. And take a moment, invite that God into that emptiness, into that temptation to despair.